some news, we'll get it to you, but for now, nothing's changed. Okay, all right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. We're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and today we are actually going to get into the sermon. The last two weeks, we've been working to lay the foundation to hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Jesus says this at the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So in week one, two weeks ago, we talked about the kingdom of heaven. I actually love Jessica's welcome. She talked about God's presence being with us and in us. We talked about that fact. And the takeaway was that God's presence being in us and with us means that wherever we go, which includes here, as she said, that is the space where God's presence and the earth overlap. And that was the big takeaway from the kingdom of heaven was that God is invading the darkness by bringing his presence to the earth through his people. And then last week, we arrived at what we're calling base camp, because I made the analogy that the Sermon on the Mount is like a mountain, and it peaks with a prayer, and then it finishes by Jesus saying, hey, do these things. So we arrived at base camp, and we prepared ourselves for the sermon by studying a few significant terms and how they relate in our modern English. So many of our Bible translations that we have today have this real weighty task of translating the Hebrew and the Greek into modern English. And truthfully, the way they approach that, the best practice is a direct translation. But you and I know that language is rich and it's layered like an onion. And so we took time last week to sort of peel those layers back, those language layers so that we could prep ourselves to read and understand Jesus' teaching in the sermon. That way we can apply it. Because ultimately the goal, Jesus' teaching, culminates in Matthew 28 when he gives us this commission. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So in order to teach others what Jesus taught his disciples, we must know it personally. We can't teach something that we don't know, right? Okay. The rest of you are amazing then because you're just teaching stuff you don't know. But for those of us who can't teach what we don't know, we need to know what Jesus said in order to be able to teach it. And so we begin our ascent today up the sermon. And the very first section of the, mount, of the mountain that is this sermon, we encounter Jesus' teaching around Christian virtue, commonly known as the Beatitudes. You've heard that term, right? Raise your hand if you've heard the term Beatitudes. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Beatitudes. Now, it should be obvious how important this passage is because Jesus leads with it. He knows that just like us, there's only a few moments 
before his audience minds start to wander to the football game coming this afternoon, their fantasy team, whatever dinner plans they have. So he gets it. He's like, I'm going to lead with the important stuff. So he starts with his teaching, and these teachings are these types of virtues that lead to a flourishing life. If you remember, part of last week's discussion was that the translation from blessed to um, modern English is more like how do we flourish? Flourishing is. And so we're going to get to that in just a second, but we can't skip directly to that because we have the first two verses in Matthew chapter 5. And so I want to read these, and we're going to look at the significance. So Matthew 5, 1 and 2 says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, it would be easy for the average reader to read those two verses and think that Matthew is just simply providing a setting. A good writer provides a good setting. Matthew did that. Jesus went up to the mountain, and it's possible that you think, well, maybe he just did that because he wanted to gain higher ground so that more people could hear him. And that's also a wise move. And while that's helpful, it's actually not the significance behind Matthew capturing this portion of the sermon. So we're going to talk about a few things that are significant about those two verses to help you see why they matter. So first of all, Jesus knew that a good portion of his audience were Jewish people. They were people who were familiar with Old Testament teachings. The Jewish culture in this time period held Moses in really high regard. Moses was a huge figure in their faith, both as a father of their faith and as someone who relayed God's law. And where did Moses go to get that law from God? He went to a mountain. Right? He went to Mount Sinai to receive God's law, to relay it to God's people. So Jesus, by climbing a mountain to begin his teaching, he is signaling, without saying it, to his audience, especially the Jewish audience, that he is like Moses in the sense that he is God's arbiter of the law. This is a big signal, one that you and I probably won't pick up on unless we learn about that, right? We're not picking up on that naturally, but they definitely did. This also would have been familiar to his Greco-Roman audience, which is the other audience, right? We talked about the intersection of culture being Jewish uh, believers and Greeks and Romans who had no real understanding of who Jesus was or the Christian faith. And they would have been familiar with it too because the Greek and Roman mythology of the time would often portray their gods, their characters, as going up to a mountain to receive wisdom, right? So Jesus ascending this mountain, first of all, has a lot of significance. Now, throughout the imagery of uh, ascending the mountain to teach God's law, Jesus is proclaiming himself God's divine revealer. This is a really bold move, right? This is a really big statement, and it's why the the verses 1 and 2 are so important. This isn't the only place that Matthew captures this theme in the gospel. It's one of the first places, but it's not the only one. And I want to show you 
Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is seen as God, God's divine revealer. So Matthew 15, 29, all of these scriptures will be on the screen. Just read them and hear what they say. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Matthew 17, 1, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Matthew 24, 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and, the end, and of the end of the age? And then Matthew 28, 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So this Jesus-Moses comparison uh, is really important. The mountain is really important, but it's actually not the only thing that we draw from this portion of the scripture. Number two, we see that Jesus is shown to be seated. So he goes up on the mountain, and then he sits down. And this was a cultural symbol for a teacher or a wise person. In Jesus' time, and actually for centuries after Jesus' time, the venue for the sermon at a church or a speech or a wise teaching was almost the exact opposite of ours today. When a wise teacher was to present content, whether it be that sermon or a, or a teaching on ethics or whatever it may be, they would actually sit down. And part of that's because they would preach for four hours, which is what I plan to do today. So I know you guys are pumped. But they would sit down in the public space, and the audience would actually stand around them. So the direct opposite of what we have here today. And so when Jesus sits down, he's not just, he's not just saying, hey, I'm tired. He's saying, hey, come listen to me. I'm a wise teacher. So he's God's divine uh, revealer, divine, revealing God's law, comparison to Moses, but he's also comparing himself to a wise teacher. And then one final thing that would have made Jesus' audience really take notice at the simple setting that we see in verses 1 and 2, specifically his Jewish audience, was the fact that... Um, Every one of those people would have been very familiar with the Isaiah prophecies. Isaiah held a special place in their heart because it told them of the coming Messiah who was going to rescue them, to save them, to deliver them from oppression. And so Jesus comes, and we know from last week that he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and we recognize something very significant. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says this. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So this imagery, specifically for his Jewish audience, was Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. Simply by doing what he did, walking up a mountain and sitting down and relating to their scripture, he's making these very bold statements. He's saying, I'm the divine revealer 
who is going to teach you important things because I'm the Messiah. Now, when you read verse one and two, did you pick all of that out? No, right? I mean, that's why it's so easy to pass over that, but it's really important because what Jesus is about to say in the Beatitudes is going to rock some worlds, right? It's going to seem counterintuitive to what actually leads to human flourishing. So let's pick up the sermon. Matthew 5, 3 through 11 is what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. And I want to read it to you. It said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Okay, so last week we did a lot of work on terminology, so I'm not going to belabor that point again. But I want to make a quick note and a quick reminder of one specific term, and the term is makarios. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. And it's the Greek word that is the translation of blessed. The direct English translation for makarios is blessed. But scholars, many of them actually believe, biblical scholars believe that the better English term that is used here would be the term flourishing. So when Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, when Jesus delivers them, He's setting a standard, a virtue standard, for human flourishing. Now, there's one last connection to the Old Testament that we need to make in order to realize how significant Jesus' teaching is. Um, He's not just making new statements. Rather, he's bringing to light statements that have already been made in the Old Testament, He's fulfilling the things that God has already delivered to his people. And there's a passage in Isaiah 61 that I want to read to you, but I love this saying by a man named Dr. Jerry Sitzer. Many of you know him. He says this about um, the Old and the New Testaments. He says, the old conceals the new, the new reveals the old. And here's what it means by that. Everything in the Old Testament is the foundation for what's taught, including Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. So what they're saying is, it's already there, but Jesus comes, and the fulfillment of the law is Jesus, and then when he reflects back in his teachings, it's pointing back to things that God already established, just didn't quite know the fullness of it before Jesus came. So the, the gospel of Matthew is deeply rooted in these Isaiah prophecies, specifically the last third of the book. But one particular one is really, really similar to what Jesus is teaching today, and I want to read that to you. Because I believe, and I've said this many times over the last six, seven weeks, I'd much rather you hear God's word than Pastor Rick's word. So we're going to read Isaiah 61 together. If you haven't picked up on this already, you should bring your Bibles. Whether it's a physical copy or a digital copy, you're going to need your Bible at Center Church. Okay, 
Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the, disp the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. And you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the, spout, the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. So when Jesus, yeah, praise God, right? When Jesus is delivering his beatitudes to his audience, there's a number of people who are going to hearken back to scriptures like this. It's, it's going to remind them of things that they have held and clung to for generations, ones that they've had memorized. And so they're going to perk up. They're going to go, oh, he really is a wise teacher. I want to hear what he has to say. And this passage, along with many others, serve as the necessary subtext for the sermon, for the reader or the hearer to grasp the weight of what Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, he's a, uh, a scholar at Southern Seminary and a preaching pastor at a church uh, in Kentucky. He says it this way in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in a way that is both brilliant and beautiful, the Beatitudes simultaneously invite Jesus' disciples into these flourishing virtues and comforts them with the promise of God's coming deliverance and setting of the world right. That's my hope for us. As we learn the Beatitudes, as we read the sermon, that we're both 
instructed and encouraged to live out these virtues, but also comforted that it's not finished. And the win has been established. And it's Jesus. He has defeated death on our behalf. So the rest of it is us getting to live into these virtues, learning how to flourish. These virtues are not just hopeful promises for some future well-being, but they're actually an invitation into the way of Jesus for our life today. Jesus, like any good preacher, didn't just teach these virtues, though. He actually modeled them with his life. And Matthew took great care to help us see throughout the gospel of Matthew how Jesus both taught and modeled these. And so I've put scriptures, again, they'll be on the screen because there's a lot of ones from different places, but I want to show you how Jesus modeled these, these very Beatitudes. So Jesus is humble and poor in spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 21, 5 says, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, a gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we don't see Jesus beating his chest, saying, I'm the king, obey me, demanding this royal procession. Rather, we see Jesus as a gentle king arriving by humble means. Number two, Jesus mourns and he grieves. Matthew 23, 37 through 38 shows Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left desolate. Jesus mourns for the people that say they worship God but are rejecting Jesus. He grieves for them. Number three, Jesus hungers and thirsts for God's kingdom on earth. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus sees all of these people who want to experience and need to experience God's kingdom and all that comes with it, peace, joy, healing. And he says, pray for this to happen earnestly. Pray for it earnestly. Number four, Jesus is pure in heart. Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Number five, Jesus shows mercy. In Matthew 12, we see Jesus heal a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. A big no-no, but he has mercy. Matthew 14, we see Jesus feed 5,000 plus people who are hungry when he didn't have to do that at all. It wasn't on him, but he did it anyway. Matthew 15, Jesus shows patience with his disciples 
when they are slow to learn what he's teaching. I've said this before. Sometimes you read the Gospels and what the, what the disciples say, and you just think, man, how did Jesus not quit on them? <laughs> right? Like, you, I, I get it if he would have, but he didn't because he is patient. Matthew 20, Jesus heals two blind men who are calling on him for mercy, despite the fact that the crowd was trying to shush them. They were like, have mercy on us, Lord, and everyone's saying, shh, this is Jesus, get away, and Jesus turns to him and says, no, I want to talk with him because he's merciful. Number six, Jesus gives peace through comfort, Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It was in this moment that Jesus' disciples were afraid for their life. Jesus had been crucified. He was risen, but they hadn't experienced that yet. They, they heard about it, and they were like, what are we doing? And then Jesus meets them, and he says, do not be afraid. He says to us, do not be afraid. So Jesus taught these virtues, but he also modeled them. And as we know, his command in chapter 7 is to hear these teachings, but not just hear them. To what? To put them into practice. Thank you, Mike. So therefore, I would like to spend the rest of our time. Yeah, Mike, I agree. You're awesome, dude. Spend the rest of our time looking at how we might apply these virtues into our life. So the first one is this. Hi, Camden. Dude, you're fast. I love that. I, you know, sometimes we, I, you guys could use some of that energy, okay? I'm just saying. Number one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit means having a right understanding of our need for God. Having a humble heart, knowing that we are spiritually empty without God. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus's encouragement to you. So when you're weary, when you're burdened, when you're feeling weak, you turn to God, and then you will flourish. This flies straight in the face of the narrative that we often hear in our culture, that when things get hard, you need to be strong on your own. Does that sound familiar? Guess what? That's going to kill you. Rather be poor in spirit and turn to God in your weakness. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. When people experience economic injustice, personal tragedy, or internal sorrow, God hears their mourning. Isn't that good news? Exodus 3, 7 says, this is where Moses is talking with God at the burning bush. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God knows your suffering. He's concerned with it. It's not just being heard. It's being comforted. God uses his people to comfort those who mourn, which is why community is so important. When you mourn, you will be comforted by God through his people. Number three, blessed are the meek. Now, meek is an interesting term. It's not one that we use in a lot of our dialogues, but meekness defined by Aristotle says this, strength under control. I love that definition. Aristotle, a very smart man in our history, right? 
He says, it's strength under control. The first, the first virtue that we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, is about recognizing our weakness. But we also have strengths, do we not? Every one of you do. Every one of you have strengths. And how you use your strengths is very important in the kingdom of heaven. Here's an example. Let's say you're a very convincing person. I know many of you are. You're excellent with words. You're a believable person. And you use that strength to gain every advantage for yourself, regardless of who it pushes down, disregarding who you hurt. That is not meekness. Conversely, you carry that same strength into a space where you can fight for someone else, maybe for someone who can't even fight for themselves. That's meekness. When you align your strength with God's plan for your life, using strength to advance the kingdom of heaven and to push out the darkness, light invading the darkness, that is meekness. Whatever your strengths are, they have the potential to be pretentious or meek, to be damaging or helpful. And Jesus said, flourishing are those who are meek. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness at its core is defined as God's imputed right standing at salvation through Jesus. That's the theological definition. So how does that manifest itself in our life right now? That's a great question. Glad you asked. Eventually, you will be made totally complete at salvation, right? At the end of your life, you're going to meet God. You're going to be totally restored. That's what being a whole person is about. We talked about teleos last week, being whole, being complete. But you're not there yet, right? You feel it, don't you? Internally, physically, you're not whole yet. And so in the meantime, Jesus is saying, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we do so primarily by following Jesus and living out his commands here on earth. This isn't just about our external actions either. It's about having the right heart behind our actions. And so ultimately, it's our desire for the restoration of God's kingdom during our time on earth. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So those first four Beatitudes are instructions, virtues on how we relate to God. And then the rest of them are actually, through that lens, how we relate to other people. So we're just going to cover them really quick. Number five, blessed are the merciful. Mercy defined, compassion extended, to the less fortunate as an act of worship to God. A Christian is someone who sees the less fortunate and extends compassion to this person despite the reason for their poor fortune. None of this, well, they, uh, they did that and this and, you know, I mean, no. Jesus is saying, be merciful no matter what. And so a person who exhibits mercy, it says that they too will be shown mercy. When you are merciful, you will be shown mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, having right motives, having right emotions, right thoughts, right judgment, and our attitudes towards others. That's a pure heart that leads to a flourishing life. Now, let me just say, we don't master this overnight. I am at times skeptical. I know you're thinking, Pastor Rick, how? You're so great, right? 
I'm at times skeptical. I'm at times judgmental and even cynical, but I ask God, God, give me a pure heart because I want to flourish. I want my motives and my actions to be right. Blessed are the pure in heart. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. God has extended his peace to his creation, and it's a type of peace that is beyond understanding. We see in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, it says, do not be anxious about anything, okay, (laughs) but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the type of peace that we experience as Christ followers, and it's the same type of peace that we're supposed to bring into the spaces we go, to the situations in which we exist. We live in this day where there's so much anxiety and fear. We get the opportunity to be peacemakers in those moments. When someone wrongs you, do you freak out? Or are you a peacemaker? When someone hurts someone you love, do you encourage retaliation or are you a peacemaker? Instead of escalation, anxiousness, fear, let's be peacemakers. Jeremiah 29, 7 says this, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Number eight, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the last one. We are able to be a people because of Jesus who stand apart for the sake of righteousness. Righteousness is this active participation in the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. And guess what? If you're spoken poorly because of your participation in that, you're going to flourish. That's not a bad thing. We're actually called to stand apart for the sake of righteousness. And at the same time, let us not be people who are spoken badly of because of things that are not righteous, right? It's, it's both things. Like, I don't care what people say. Well, that's not what's being taught here. For the sake of righteousness, if that is the reason you're being spoken of poorly, you will be blessed. You will flourish. Okay, so as we wrap up the time that we had today on the Beatitudes, in fact, I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to sing a song to close in just a moment. I want to make a very important clarification, a very important one. So please hear me. These virtues are not a path to salvation. I say it again. These virtues are not a path to salvation. We are saved by Jesus, by grace alone, faith in Christ, right? So you could read this, you could hear this, you'd be like, I am terrible at all of these. That's okay. That's not about salvation. Rather, they are the ways that Jesus is teaching us as Christ followers who have salvation. And if you don't have that, it's not a path there. Rather, through Jesus alone is your path to being saved. But once you're there, once you're a Christ follower, if you want to thrive and flourish today, this is how you should organize and live your life. Jesus' sermon 
is a response to the, the big question of the day. It's the same question we wrestle with here today as Christians in America. It's the same question that people in Asia and Europe and Africa are wrestling with today and have wrestled with throughout time. How do I live a happy life? Everyone is after the answer to the question, how can I live the best life possible? And there's a lot of wrong answers out there, and Jesus gives us the right ones. And they don't always sound right. They don't always feel right. But every Christ follower knows that if you are faithful to what Jesus teaches, you will be like a rock, a house built on a rock, rather, that can withstand the storms of life. If you've experienced a storm and your house, which is your life, is built on the rock of Jesus, you can survive it. And eventually, you will get back to thriving. So here's the big idea for today. Matthew goes to great lengths throughout his gospel, including the portions on the sermon, to capture very specific things like the setting. We talked about that. Like the teachings around a virtuous life. And even to show how Jesus himself lived out these virtues. But the most important work that Matthew does is he takes the question, how does someone live a happy life? And he answers it very robustly and very specifically. If you want to flourish, this is what you must do. You must follow Jesus. You must live like Jesus. But you must keep your focus on Jesus. That's the big idea in Matthew and for us today. Do your best around these virtues. I want you all to flourish. But in order to do so, you must keep your focus on Jesus. Can we do that? Okay. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Jesus, as we listen to your teaching, as we hear and apply these teachings into our lives, God, we recognize our need for you. There's all kinds of things happening in the lives of each and every person here today. Some of those things are good. Some of them are not so good. So God, I pray that we would put that all aside, whether we're killing it, whether we're struggling, or we're somewhere in between, and that we would turn our focus to you. That we would keep our sights set on you, that we would follow you where you are leading us. And along the way, help us flourish. We're not just here to survive, we're here to thrive, we're here to flourish as Christians on earth. So I pray that that would be the case for each and every person today. And God, as we sing, as we praise you because of this fact, let us sing loudly and let us go about our day taking your presence with us. As we go about our week, taking your presence with us into the places we go. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.